Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Fanny Crosby's Memories of 80 Years, and it is by Fanny Crosby, and there is no copyright on it. And we are on Chapter 6, Inspiration for Work. Not many weeks after the interview with Dr. Jones, he called me to the office one day and said, You are not to write a line of poetry for three months. This decision came as a bolt of lightning out of a clear sky and I was overwhelmed with the astonishment. But for six weeks, he resolutely enforced his command to the very letter. And at the end of this period, I fell into a state of listlessness. My teacher soon noticed that my lessons were unlearned, the result which was a third summons before the superintendent. Dr. Jones said, Fanny, what is the trouble with your lessons? The teachers report that you do not recite as well as you did during the last term. Are you ill? Before he had fairly finished questioning me, my reply was ready, because I had been expecting just such an interview. And so I made up my mind what to say. I replied, I find it impossible to keep my mind on my lessons, for poetry occupies my thoughts in spite of all efforts to think of other things. I cannot help it. Well, said the superintendent, write as much as you like, but pay a little more attention to the morning lectures. They had been trying me. In those days, phrenology was on high favor, and as a last attempt to find out whether I was born a poet or not, the science was brought to bear upon my case when a favorable opportunity came. This was very soon, the occasion being a visit of the celebrated Dr. Combe of Boston for the purpose of examining the craniums of some of our pupils. There was one boy among them, who could listen to two stories, sing a song, and solve a hard problem in mathematics at the same time. At least it was what he said he could do all that. When the doctor came to him, he exclaimed, Here is a great mathematician, and someday you will hear from him. Daniel Webster was always greatly admired for his brain power, but he said of himself that he could think only of one thing at, at once. But our pupil was unlike him in this respect, and also in another. He never did become famous, as the phrenologist predicted he would. When Dr. Combe came to look at my head, he remarked, And here is a poetress. Give her every possible advantage. Read the best books to her and teach her to appreciate the best poetry. This was certainly welcome news to me, and it must have had some little effect upon my teachers, for now they encouraged me in all the ways wherein they had before tried to dishearten me. Dr. Hamilton Murray who at that time was a member of the board of managers of the Institute, soon took me into his charge, and I became known to my friends as his little protege. His knowledge of the classics was broad, his natural talent superior, and his command of the mother language excellent. He read to me from the classics by the hour and advised me to commit long passages to memory, and frequently he gave me the lines of famous poets to imitate. Some of these, of course, were means to an end, and consequently were soon forgotten. I can, in fact, recall but one, a scrap of verse in the style of Nathaniel P. Willis, whom I was told to imitate in such a way that it cannot be told from his original poem. The specimen from Willis is called Morning, and runs as follows. Oh, could we wake from sorrow, were it all a changeful dream like this, to cast aside an untimely garment of morn? Could the long fever of the soul be cooled by a sweet breath from nature? 
how lightly were the spirit reconciled. My parody is, Oh, could we with gloomy shades of night chase the dark clouds of sorrow from the brow? Could pure affection feel no withering blithe? But heart to heart in one sweet tie be linked. How were the soul content to fold her wings and dwell forever in such loveliness? The political campaigns in the years between 1840 and 1850 call forth a great amount of verifying. In the autumn of the first-named year, General Harrison was elected to the presidency. Everybody loved the hero of Tippecanoe, and the opposing party hunted high and low, but they could not find one thing in his record that might be used against him. He was a candidate of the Whig Party, and I was an ardent Democrat. One of the interesting ditties used during the campaign is now remembered by many. Did you ever hear of a farmer whose cabin's in the West, of all the men for president, the wisest and the best? To put him in the capital, we've found a capital way, or we'll sing our Harrison song by night and beat his foes by day. In my zeal for the Democratic Party, I felt it proper to change the last line into and scratch his eyes by day. Perhaps the best-remembered song is Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, the first lines of which are, Oh, what has caused this great commotion, commotion, motion, our country through. It is the ball that's rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. But the hero of Tippecanoe lived but a single month to serve his country as president. Evidently, the new surroundings at Washington did not agree with him, and he passed away on April the 4th, 1841. In memory of the sad event, I wrote some eulogistic stanzas, which have already been mentioned, in connection with my grandfather's 80-mile walk. As this poem was the best that I had written previous to 1841, I quoted in part, He is gone, in death's cold arms he sleeps, our president, our hero brave, while fair Columbia over him weeps, and chants a requiem at his grave. Her sanguine hopes are blighted now, and weeds of sorrow veil her brow. Ah, Indiana, where is he, who once thy sons to battle lead? The red men quelled beneath his eye, and from his camp disheartened fled. With steady hands he bent the bow, and laid the warlike savage low. The forest with his praises rung, his fame was echoed far and wide. With loud hurrah his name was sung, Columbia's hero and her pride. The tuneful harp is now unstrung, and on the drooping willow hung. One afternoon at the commencement of our summer vacation, our superintendent came in and said that President Tyler, who succeeded General Harrison, was in the reception room, and that the mayor and the common council were with him. Well, I did know what that meant and said, now, give me 10 or 15 minutes, and I shall have the best welcome that I can prepare in so short a time. I recited my poem and then sang a piece, and concluded by singing a song, which I had composed for the previous 4th of July, all of which I remember is two lines of the chorus. And this, the glad song of our nation shall be, hurrah for John Tyler and Liberty's tree. As memories roll back the curtains of the years, I behold again the institution with its spacious halls that rang with mirth and song, its schoolrooms filled with happy hearts and smiling faces, the chapel where at morn and eve and on Sabbath days we gather for religious worship, 
and the beautiful playgrounds from which the dear sounds of the bell called us from our fun to our duty. But a shade of sadness steals over me, and I ask, Where are the friends of my youth, and where are those treasured ones gone? Instantly the names of Cynthia Bullock, Catherine Kennedy, Mary Mettox, Anna Smith, Imogene Hart, and Alice Holmes are on my lips. They were among my earliest associates, and their voices come back mingled with sweet memories of sunny past. The murmur of the afternoon breeze and the echo of the woodland and the quietness of the twilight. And now I fancy that we are hastening from the school room for our 15-minute recess. Again we stand together in a group in some remote corner, repeating the lessons we have learned and striving not to forget any of them before tomorrow's morning class, when they would be reviewed. Thus the past indeed blend with the present. Life in those years had few changes for us, and we trusted the many hopes for the future to a wiser guidance than our own. Of all this happy company of girls who were at the New York Institute before 1840, only Imogene Hart and Alice Holmes and I are living. Miss Hart possessed a deep love for music inherited from her father, under whose judicious training she was able to sing from many classic authors before she was ten years old. And I am glad to know that her voice still retains its sweetness. Judging from the music and poems she sends me from time to time, I am confident that she has not lost her old fondness of the divine arts. Alice Holmes was a deep thinker, and a genius for mathematics carried her far beyond most of her companions. She was also gifted with poetic fancy, and has written two beautiful little volumes of poetry since she was with us at the institution. I well remember the day she came to us from our home in Jersey City. We were appraised of her coming and determined to give her a good reception as we could, lest she should become homesick as many of us had been. She was to occupy a portion of my room, and it devolved upon me to make her feel at home, and very soon we were conversing about all sorts of things. I found that she was a member of the Episcopal Church, but while I was an adherent of the Methodist, and contrast between us in this respect suggested a bit of doggerel, walking demurely toward her couch in the further end of the room, just as she was about to retire. I said, Alice, I have a piece of poetry, which I would like you to hear. Will you please tell me how it sounds? And then I repeated my lines. Oh, how it grieves my poor old bones to sleep so near the Alice Holmes. I will inform good Mr. Jones I cannot sleep with a churchman. In the course of five or six years of our school increased rapidly, and when I entered in 1835, I was the 31st student. Under the end of the ten years, of the number was more than a hundred. In an old building, we were packed away in close quarters, but we were happy as birds of a May morning. The new school edifice was completed early in 1841. Thanksgiving Day was always one particular interest to us, for besides a hearty dinner and reunion of the pupils in the morning, in the evening there was entertainment to which the board of managers were also invited. One of these social gatherings, seven of us girls recited a dialogue that I had written for the occasion. The subject was New England and New York. It was dedicated to Mr. James F. Chamberlain, our superintendent, who is a native of Rhode Island. Part of the last chorus, as it was sung to the tune of All Lang Syne, follows. Should ancient customs be forgotten and never brought to mind, in what our fathers love so well can we no pleasure find. They weave a charm around the heart that cannot pass away. Thanksgiving Day, we love its name, the dear Thanksgiving Day. 
A social band are gathering now around the blazing hearth, and gaily rings their merry laugh in songs of artless mirth. Bright moments of unsurlied joy, and oh, could ye stay long? Thanksgiving Day, we love its name, the dear Thanksgiving Day. And that's the end of Chapter 6, and next week will be Chapter 7, The Daily Task. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.